0: Thanks for joining us on this week's episode where we watch and discuss the best picture nominees from the 87th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie, and I'm Kelsey. Let's find
1: out if the Oscars got it wrong All right.
0: Maddie, have we lost our minds? Have we lost control of this podcast? It's
1: possible? <laughs> that these recordings you are about to hear will be used when someone tries to commit us to some sort of institution. But we're going to find out as we go, because we're in the year 2014. There were eight nominees that year. Mm -hmm. So you're thinking, okay, we're doing a bracket. We know how this goes. We saw 1939. But you have no idea what you're in for. (laughs) Because eight films apparently just weren't enough for us. And uh, we decided to add what you're saying a couple more to the mix, make it 10. No, no. Mm -mm. We've picked eight more films (laughs) to add to the existing eight films. And we are about to discuss 16 movies. Yeah. How are you feeling about this?
0: I think it's going to be an interesting adventure. Hopefully it is not too confusing to listen to. But a couple of things happened. One, we were pretty disappointed with the nominees. Not all of them, but some. Some of them. One. We did think a couple of other movies were eligible this year that we felt very strongly about. Turned out they were not. But we decided to move forward with this idea anyway. So there are definitely some things that were not nominated that we feel very strongly about, should have mm-hmm. been nominated.
1: And others where we were like, you know what? Let's liven up this field. Why Why keep things so stodgy and yeah. boring? It's, the Oscars can be fun. They could be. They could be. They could be. So in that spirit, we're trying to bring a little bit of fun to this year.
0: Yes. I think it is also worth saying, I came out to visit you, and so we watched all of these movies together mm-hmm. in a three-day period about
1: yeah Uh, i did the little bit of number crunching pretty sure it was about 74 hours and we Mm -hmm. watched 17 films because we did accidentally watch one of the ones that we thought was eligible and it turned out it was not
0: it was also about a month prior to
1: this recording
0: so if we get any details of these films wrong please forgive us Mm -hmm. that's what happened (laughs)
1: We'll see how this goes. I'm excited. But before we get down to describing the exact bracket system we're using and what these new movies we added are, we have to, of course, set you in the time period of 2014 and talk about what was going on that year. It's not that long ago, but just to refresh everyone's memories, what was happening in 2014?
0: So we have some domestic news. This was the year that we resumed normal diplomatic relations with Cuba, the U.S. I think we thought like, oh, does that mean we're going to be able to go to Cuba? And that has not happened yet. It really doesn't seem like much has changed,
1: if I'm being honest. But
0: for our day-to-days. Maybe someday. Yeah.
1: Also in 2014, Black Lives Matter entered the lexicon though it was actually coined a year earlier in 2013. But it became sort of a big movement here in the States. In
0: the Middle East, this was the year that ISIL rose to international prominence. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: that was happening. Good news again. And it was the start of the American intervention in the Syrian civil war, although that had been going on for a little bit at that point as well.
1: This is the year that Russia annexed Crimea following the Ukrainian revolution. Ukraine really just can't get a win. No. It's rough out there. Interestingly enough, there was
0: a report at the time that the annexation of Crimea was maybe a way for Russia to distract its citizens from the mismanagement of the Sochi Olympics. I think in retrospect, it doesn't feel like that
1: anymore. Well, yeah, they certainly didn't give up on it right after the Olympics ended or anything. But the Olympics were hilariously mismanaged. The Sochi Olympics... A winter olympics which you'd think makes sense for russia right mm-hmm. sochi is actually a summer resort town they very much struggled to find any snow for yes snow sports <laughs> people did not enjoy it there was a lot of complaining from the athletes about the quality of the fake snow that they were forced to do their sports on
0: mm-hmm. yep so they had no snow they also had no bathroom dividers i think you <laughs> love this maddie i think you yes. want to talk about i
1: this. do love this There was this memed photo from the Russian Olympics where there's a bathroom stall with two toilets in it and no divider between the two of them. And how this happened, I have no idea. I guess it's for taking bathroom breaks with your buddies so you can hold hands while you go. I have no idea why. But some of the money from this, I believe this was the most expensive ever Olympics put on by a country, maybe could have gone to some more bathroom dividers. Yeah. So no snow, no bathroom dividers. What else?
0: (laughs) No clean athletes on Russia's part. This is Uh, right in their doping scandal where they had that state-sponsored doping program. And of course, over the last few Olympics, they have not been able to compete as Russia. Some might say they mm -hmm. shouldn't be able to compete at
1: all. But (laughs) yeah, there was continued doping scandal in this most recent Olympics. So... It went off without a hitch, the Sochi Olympics. Great times all around. Also this year, people will definitely remember the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, the mystery that captured the imaginations of the world. Yes. Your brain just sort of can't comprehend that it's possible that we could lose a plane this size in the world as much as scientists are like, come on, guys, the ocean's really big. (laughs) Like, my brain can't understand that the ocean is so big. Yeah, because you
0: see a plane and you go, wow, that plane's pretty big. The
1: plane's huge. (laughs) (laughs) But still not recovered. Yes. Is there any fun news this year?
0: There is fun news. We got size Gangnam style, which of course was a phenomenon. It predates the the real rise of K-pop in the states which we've seen over the past couple of years, but <laughs> everyone was into it. And then also we have a little bit of Oscar's news. So not the award ceremony we're talking about in this episode, but the one that aired this year, so the uh-huh. 86, I guess. This is the Academy Awards where John Travolta called Adina Menzel the wickedly talented Adele Decee. <laughs> Which continues to make me laugh very hard to this day.
1: It's just so good. What a delightful moment in Oscar. Wickedly history. talented. I love when you Google this, people are Googling if Adele Dizim is a real person. Like he just <laughs> accidentally got Adina Menzel confused with Adele Dizim, as we all do. I feel like if Adina
0: Menzel does, do you remember when Garth Brooks did that thing where he had like a, an yes. alt, art,
1: alter ego? She needs to create an Adele Dizim character yes. to perform under, doing some style of music she doesn't usually do it could be a country star (laughs) all right so that's the year we will also tell you the top five highest grossing films of the year so that you can get a sense of what was happening in film at the time the top five were transformers age of extinction the hobbit the battle of the five armies guardians of the galaxy maleficent and The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. It's not great. It's not great, but you might have noticed some interesting similarities between a few of those titles. We didn't read all of them, but in the top 10 highest grossing films of the year, five of them had colons in the title. They did. <laughs> so it's a big year for colons, That's people. It's our
0: only additional... Notable news that we found in the film industry for that year.
1: You know, when we do these recent years, we don't get to do someone invented Steadicam. Like that stuff's not really happening that much anymore. Yeah. There are always interesting things happening in CGI technology, but they're harder for people to notice and track generally at least lay people like us yeah
0: all right so that brings us to the movie discussion what we're going to do is we're going to run through really quickly not do all the stats the nominees we're going to talk about what won then we're going to get into how we're going to format this episode
1: we gotta talk logistics people because (laughs) it's gonna be something we've done something
0: so just everyone knows what was nominated this year in alphabetical order they were american sniper birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance Boyhood, The Grand Budapest Hotel, The Imitation Game, Selma, The Theory of Everything, and Whiplash.
1: And the winner that year was Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Mm-hmm. And what was the sort of consensus at the time about that victory?
0: So what we found is sort of in all the lead-up awards which people always talk about as indicating what might win the Oscar, the majority of the awards were going to Birdman and Boyhood. So those seemed to be yeah. the two front runners. So yeah, probably not a huge surprise that that Birdman won Best Picture at yeah. these Academy Awards.
1: Okay, Okay. let's get into it. What are we doing? What have we done? (laughs) What have we
0: done or what are we doing? (laughs) What is
1: the plan? There's going to be a similarity if you listened to our 1939 episode. The bracket is similarly structured. What we did then and what we have done now is look at the Rotten Tomatoes scores of each of our films and rank them in order to create sort of seeding structure as you will know from sports brackets. If any of the t- movies shared a same score on Rotten Tomatoes, we have looked at the number of reviews to tiebreak that. So whichever had more reviews ends up in the higher number. So I guess we should tell you what eight movies we added mm-hmm. so that we can give you a sense of the full bracket. So the eight movies added to this list are, again, in alphabetical order, Big Hero 6, Edge of Tomorrow, Foxcatcher, Guardians of the Galaxy, How to Train Your Dragon 2, The Lego Movie, Nightcrawler, and Snowpiercer. Yes.
0: And so now we will go through all the matchups, do uh, the process where we determine if we agree agree on what the winners and losers are we'll talk about the losers later if we disagree we will enter into a bit of a debate i think we should say right we intend to post the bracket somewhere so like you you can follow along along.
1: (laughs) play along because this is confusing enough for us and we're looking at it on paper it would be good if you could also see the structure of the bracket
0: so you can play Uh, along with us
1: go to our twitter or whatever and it will be posted there yeah so First, the one seed versus the 16 seed. Our one seed is Selma, a biopic of Martin Luther King Jr. that focuses on the march from Selma to Montgomery. It stars David Oyelowo, Tom Wilkinson, Carmen Ejogo, directed by Ava DuVernay, written by Paul Webb. It was nominated for two Academy Awards and it won one for Best Original Song.
0: Yes, and it is up against American Sniper, the sixteenth seed, a biopic about Chris Kyle, the most lethal sniper in US military history. It stars Bradley Cooper and Sienna Miller. It's directed by Clint Eastwood. It was written by Jason Hall. Nominated for six and won one best sound editing.
1: So I guess on I don't know, on the count of three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which, which one do you think won? I guess let's do it that way. Yes. Okay, so one, two, three. Selma. Yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> uh, I don't think we need to have any discussion about it if we're in agreement. Yeah, so let's we'll loop just back around to the losers. Move Maybe it along to, it. to the next pairing. Yes. Which is our two seed, Boyhood, a coming of age story about a boy growing up. It stars Patricia Arquette, Ethan Hawke, and Eller Coltrane. Directed and written by Richard Linklater, it was nominated for six awards and it won one Best Supporting Actress for Patricia Arquette.
0: So Boyhood is up against the 15th seed, The Theory of Everything, a biopic of Stephen Hawking that tracks his relationship with his wife, Jane, and the progression of his ALS. Stars Eddie Redmayne, Felicity Jones, and Charlie Cox. Directed by James Marsh, written by Anthony McCartan. It's nominated for five and it won one Best Actor, Eddie Redmayne. All right. Great. Can of three. Choose the winner. Sure. <laughs> One, two, three. Boyhood. Boyhood.
1: Okay. Oh, we did it at the same time that time. Yeah. Good for 100%. us. 100%. Okay.
0: So far, so good.
1: So far, so good. Can we do this five more times? Okay. Our three seed is The Lego Movie, an animated comedy where everything is awesome when you're part of a team. Yay. It stars Chris Pratt, Will Ferrell, Elizabeth Banks- Directed and written by Phil Lord and Chris Miller. It was nominated for one Academy Award and it won zero. That's up against
0: our 14th seed, Foxcatcher, a true story of two Olympic gold medalist brothers whose lives are destroyed after they are recruited to train with Johnny DuPont. It stars Steve Carell, Channing Tatum, and Mark Buffalo. It was directed by Bennett Miller, written by E. Max Fry and Dan Futterman. It was nominated for five and it won zero.
1: On the count of three. One, two, three. Foxcatcher. Fox Foxcatcher. Okay. Oh my God, we're doing it. I'm so stressed about us having to debate a bunch of these. I know. <laughs> Every time we, we agree on one, I'm like, oh, thank God.
0: We're rolling right along. Okay. Yeah. Next matchup. Okay.
1: Next matchup is our four seed, Nightcrawler, a black comedy slash psychological thriller about the world of freelance news videographers. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Riz Ahmed, and Renee Russo. Directed and written by Dan Gilroy. It was nominated for one Academy Award and it won zero.
0: That's up against our 13th seed, The Imitation Game, a biopic about Alan Turing and the British team that cracked the Enigma machine during World War II. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Keira Knightley, Rory Kinnear, Mark Strong. It was directed by Morton Tilden, written by Graham Moore, nominated for eight and won one Best Adapted Screenplay. Mm-hmm. Ready? Yes. One, two, three. The Imitation Game. I'm just kidding. It's Nightcrawler. I know you
1: are, you liar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Next set. We're halfway through. All in agreement. Our fifth seat is Whiplash, a drama about an ambitious music student and his abusive teacher. It stars Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons, written and directed by Damien Chazelle. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, and it won three. Best Supporting Actor for J.K. Simmons, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound Mixing.
0: Okay, that's up against our 12th seed, Big Hero 6, an animated action film about a young genius who must avenge his brother with the help of a robot nurse. It stars Scott Adsett, Ryan Potter, and Daniel Henney. It's directed by Don Hall and Chris Williams, and written by Jordan Roberts, Robert L. Baird, and Dan Gerson. It's nominated for one. And it won one Best Animated Feature.
1: (laughs) We didn't note that. Our notes failed us
0: a little bit there. Okay.
1: Okay. On the count of three for these two. One, two, three.
0: Whiplash. Oh, my my goodness. We are crushing it.
1: (laughs) Are we agreeing or are we reading each other's (laughs) minds? Uh, Who can say? Our next pairing is our sixth seed, Snowpiercer, a science fiction action satire about the last survivors of a catastrophic climate change event who live on a self-contained train. It stars Chris Evans, Tilda Swinton, and Song Kang-ho, directed by Bong Joon-ho and written by Bong Joon-ho and Kelly Masterson. It was nominated for zero Academy Awards.
0: Boo. All right, that's up against our 11th seed, Edge of Tomorrow, a Groundhog Day style action sci fi film about an alien invasion. It stars Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. It's directed by Doug Lyman, written by Christopher McQuarrie, Jez Butterworth, and John Henry Butterworth. It's
1: nominated for zero. Wow, this is a sad little pairing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, on the count of three. One, three one, two, three, Snowpiercer. Snow We're doing it. We're really doing it. Oh my We're gosh. Really The next one is going to be tough for me because I'm ambivalent about it, but we'll see. Okay. Our number seven seed, Guardians of the Galaxy, a sci-fi action comedy about a ragtag group of losers who save the galaxy. It stars Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Dave Bautista, Vin Diesel, and Bradley Cooper. Directed by James Gunn and written by James Gunn and Nicole Perlman, it was nominated for two and won... 0.
0: That's up against our 10th seed, How to Train Your Dragon 2, an animated adventure about Vikings that must protect their dragon friends from an evil warlord. It stars Jay Baruchel, Kate Blanchett, and Gerard Butler. It's directed and written by Dean DeBlois. It was nominated for 1 and 10. One
1: okay. I mean, I don't even know what I'm going to say, but I guess I'll find out yeah. in a moment. <laughs> All right, 1, 2, three guardians Guardians of the galaxy Galaxy. okay Okay. (laughs) this is the one where i most was like i could go either way but okay okay guardians of the galaxy it is and finally our final matchup this is for the big money (laughs) to see if we go eight for eight Our, our nominees are the eighth seed the grand budapest hotel a dramedy about the concierge of an eastern european hotel and his lobby boy it stars Ray Fiennes, Tony Revolori, Adrian Brody, Ed Norton, Saoirse Ronan, and Willem Defoe. It was written and directed by Wes Anderson, nominated for nine Academy Awards, and it won four. Best Costume Design, Best Makeup and Hairstyling, Best Original Score, and Best Production Design.
0: That's up against our ninth seed, Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, a black comedy about a washed-up action star trying to revitalize his career by staging a Broadway show. It stars Michael Keaton, Zach Galifianakis, Ed Norton, and Emma Stone. It was directed by Alejandro Iñárritu and written by Alejandro Iñárritu, Nicholas Giacobón, Alexander Dinalaris Jr., and Armando Bó. It's nominated for nine and it won four Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Cinematography.
1: Both nominated for nine and won four, huh? What a matchup. Okay. On the count of three. One, two, three. The Grand, Grand Budapest Hotel! Pest! Hotel! <laughs> we were oh so concerned God. we were
0: going to get into like eight debates and it just was, it was oh.
1: oh, friend. This oh, is a friend. weight off of my mind, people. You have no idea. Also, I don't know if you've noticed, but a big upset just happened because the winner of the best picture... Just went down in the first round of our bracket. Oh snap. Oh snap. Now
0: well, we get to talk about it. That's amazing. We agreed on everything.
1: Incredible God, this work. Is fantastic. Good job, us. So that still leaves us with eight films to talk about in this episode. So I think our strategy is going to be speed round. Our first loser then. The 16th seed, American Sniper.
0: Yes. So you might notice that this is the lowest of all the seeds. This is one of the ones that was actually nominated for Best Picture, Dead Last.
1: It gets something in the 70s on Rotten Tomatoes, which is fairly unconventional for a Best Picture nominee. And you might say, oh, the critics don't always know what they're talking about. You know, they're they're all hoity-toity and they don't know how the people feel about the films. But let me tell you. This film is a piece of garbage. (laughs) A 70 is generous for this film. And I have been mad about having seen it since I watched it in the theaters in 2014.
0: (laughs) I saw it for the first time during our viewing. And it was lucky for you an experience, I suppose. So real quick, the movie is about (laughs) Chris Kyle. He's a guy. He's just living his life. Yeah. The 9-11 happens. And well,
1: he's already signed up for the military.
0: Yes, that's true. And then
1: 9-11 happens.
0: He signed up for the military. He meets a woman at at a bar. That's important. She becomes his wife. 9-11 happens. He is deployed. He's like
1: extra enthused about going to war because of 9-11. And then he trains to be a sniper Uh and he goes to war and he kills just tons and tons of people, way too many people really, in the war in Iraq. Mm -hmm. He sort of doesn't feel a whole lot of ways about it. He keeps going back to war. He keeps redeploying because he has to go support his men. He can't leave them alone over there. Uh, his wife is like, hey, maybe you could come back for more at some point <laughs> so that I'm not raising our children alone. He's like, oh, but my boys are over there. So he goes back and he goes back and then he eventually does, you know, retire or whatever it's called. And... He doesn't know what to do with himself when he can't go be a sniper. He ends up talking to a guy at the VA who gets him involved working with other veterans. And in real life, what happens is he's working with a troubled vet. He takes him to a shooting range one day, and the vet ends up shooting and killing him. Yes. Uh, How would you feel about this movie?
0: Okay, so this is a Clint Eastwood directed film. This is the second Clint Eastwood film <laughs> we've covered on the podcast. After Mystic River. After Mystic River. I think you said during that episode, you're not a big fan of Clint Eastwood. I've not seen a ton of Clint Eastwood movies. I was not a big fan of his directing in this film. <laughs> yeah. Not only is his filmmaking heavy handed, but the script is very heavy handed, which
1: yep.
0: it was interesting looking up the guy who wrote it. He hasn't written like anything
1: else. Yeah, I have no idea how they pick this guy.
0: Yeah. There's a very heavy handed scene very early on when he's a, the Chris Kyle character is a little kid where his dad is like, are you going to be a wolf or a sh- or a sheepdog or some other animal?
1: I think sheep. I think that he's like, there are three types of things that people can be. A yeah. sheep or a wolf or a sheep dog who protects the sheep from yes. the wolves. You got to be a, and a sheep dog. The entire emotional motivation and structure for this character. There is nothing else going on with him other than this speech that his dad gave him as a child. Right.
0: So throughout the, the film, you're like, oh, I see. He feels the need to be a sheep dog. That's why he has to keep going back to protect his sheep. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the movie jumps back and forth between his tours and him being back at home. He clearly has PTSD, but the movie never addresses that. I think the movie thinks it's addressing it when he comes home and begins to work at the VA. But that's still him avoiding dealing with the fact that he has PTSD. He has
1: one scene with a therapist guy at the VA. I remember watching it the first time and thinking if the movie had been entirely about this, that might have been interesting. Because you know how I love a therapy movie in general, but also just the idea that if he could actually confront anything about what was going on with him emotionally could have been interesting because he's a blank slate through the entire film. His entire motivation is, I just got to support my men. I love my country and I love my men and I got to go there and, and support my men and my country. And you're like... That's not a human. Yeah. (laughs) What's going on with you? Where are your layers?
0: So and then, you know, there are just elements of the filmmaking where it's clear. It's so clear that Clint Eastwood only did one take. The scene where 9-11 happens, man, they threw poor Sienna Miller under the bus. Oh, it's
1: bad. If people remember 9-11 happening, which I do and you do, and if you're of a certain age, I'm sure you do. When it happened, like the moment it happened, people did not know what the fuck was going on, Mm-mm. right? The news coverage was like, "Whoa, this is wild. A plane has hit the World Trade Center. Who knows what this could mean? Was it an accident? Did the pilot fall asleep? I don't know what's going on. And then the other one hit and it became clear that like something was happening. But still, I don't think it's chaos. We're drawing any conclusions in the moment about what was happening. But how do they do it in this movie?
0: I would just say like, you know, it's one of these moments in history where you do remember, like we were in middle school. I remember being in school. We watched it on TV. They started playing it on the school TVs as we were like, what is going on?
1: I actually, interestingly, have a slightly different memory than people my age because I was homesick that day. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's what was happening at school, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, I heard that from everyone after, yeah. but for me, it was like I don't remember if I was watching it and called my mom, or my mom called me and told me to turn it on. But one of those things happened, yeah. and so it was me at home, just on the phone with my mother, and both of us being like, "What?" <laughs> yeah.
0: So yeah, it, when it happens in the movie, Chris is in the bedroom, and Sienna Miller is watching it on TV, and you just hear go, "Chris," and then Chris comes out, and Sienna Miller goes, "Oh no." <laughs>
1: Poor Sienna Miller.
0: Poor Sienna Miller. <laughs> that's the scene, Julie, and then it's over. The scene's poor over. Poor Sienna
1: Miller throughout this entire movie. Chris. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Which, as we all remember, is how we respond to yeah, everyone. It's
0: been 9-11. So that's terrible. There's some really bad CGI in the movie. Mm-hmm. We also have to talk, no. I think, about the baby.
1: <laughs> the baby. If people have not seen this movie but they live on the internet. They likely will have heard about the fake baby. There is a widely ridiculed and memed scene in this movie where Bradley Cooper has been asked by Clint Eastwood to do one of the more demeaning things I've ever seen an actor do on camera. For some reason, Clint Eastwood decided they didn't want any real babies in this movie because that might make it too realistic or something like that. Oh, they might have to
0: do two takes.
1: Yeah. Yes. And what if the baby cried? That's right. probably exactly what he was thinking. Yeah. So we gave them the fakest fake baby that has ever existed. And in order to sell it, <laughs> poor little Bradley Cooper is acting his scene. And it's an emotional scene that they're acting him and Sienna Miller. And he's moving the limbs of this fake baby (laughs) with his own hand. You
0: can see him holding the baby. And then with his finger, he's moving the little plastic arm up and down. And it's, it's incredible. Bless you, Bradley Cooper. But I will also say, so I'd seen that before seeing this movie. But earlier in that scene, Sienna Miller is holding the fake baby. And they have CGI'd the baby's hand to make it look like it's moving. And it looks like a sea anemone. And honestly, it haunts my dreams. Like sometimes I'm living my life now and I think about it and I'm like, this is, that's a horror movie. Their baby has an anemone hand. (laughs)
1: Oh my god, the fake baby is amazing. But yeah, this movie is just straight up war propaganda. The presentation of all of the Iraqi characters is the least nuanced thing that's ever happened in the world. There are no good Iraqis in the story. There's one that is working with them at one point, and then it turns out he's actually a traitor. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, they're just not even characters at all. The way they set it up, which is insane, when they're first going into the war, I think they're going into Fallujah. And the way they present this to the soldiers is, Fallujah has been cleared of all civilians. So if anyone is left in town, they're an enemy combatant. Shoot on sight. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess they're trying to do a thing that's like, let's not feel bad about the fact that he's here murdering people. But that's insane. (laughs) You know, everyone, this isn't exactly comparable, but if people live in the United States, they know when hurricanes happen. They will try to evacuate huge swaths of, like, Florida because the hurricane is coming. And somehow, (laughs) we always end up after the hurricane with a city full of people stranded in their homes. (laughs) How did those people end up still there? I wonder. Did they decide not to leave? Or was it difficult to leave? So is there a chance that there could be some civilians left in Fallujah (laughs) even after it's been, quote, unquote, evacuated? Maybe. But the first kills they have him do in the movie, I don't know why they choose to do this. Maybe this is how it was in real life. But the first people they have him kill are a woman and child who are like, they have some sort of explosive device. Yeah, like a grenade thing. And he first has to kill the woman and then the child picks up the grenade. And he's there being like, don't pick it up. Don't pick it up. Like, basically, don't don't make me kill you, child. (laughs) And it's so funny. I mean, it's really difficult. We talked in our
0: Born on the Fourth of July discussion
1: mm-hmm. about,
0: you know, Ron Kovic, and he's this innocent guy, and he signs up for Vietnam, and he doesn't know what he's getting into. But by the time in American history you get to Iraq, I think you have to know that not every American war is just, right? Because Vietnam yes. has happened.
1: Yeah, if you know anything about Vietnam. Yeah. And so, like, it's just hard
0: to watch. Because I'm watching it, I'm going, we shouldn't be there. This child should not be in this situation. And it is not their fault and they shouldn't be killed.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And also they're not presenting the viewpoint that if we shouldn't be there, which we shouldn't be there, because why the fuck are we there? They are absolutely fucking justified to not want us there, right? Mm -hmm. And to be like, you guys need to get out. Right. (laughs) And we are allowed to exercise some amount of force on you, the invading army. That has come into our town, right? But that viewpoint exists nowhere in this film. We're all just there to be like, isn't it cool that this guy is the most lethal sniper in US history? Right. Without any question of who are the people that he's killing? <laughs> I told you that the thing it reminded
0: me of too was the propaganda film that's in *Inglorious Bastards, which is also yes. about a sniper. And I'm like, how could you make this movie post *Inglorious Bastards? Where That is like, obviously
1: so Clint ridiculous. Clint Eastwood has no sense of irony. <laughs> in that movie. <laughs>
0: But yeah, his character just isn't well-developed. Like you said, he's a blank. A lot of the other characters aren't well-developed either. There's a guy who's always with him while he's up sniping who seems to do nothing.
1: Nothing. I describe him as his hype man. Who's his guy? I'm sure that's Why all Why is he always here?
0: <laughs> There's a scene too late in the movie where one of his war buddies starts to have second thoughts about participating in the war, and then he yeah. dies. And Chris Kyle's perspective as well. The thing that killed him was his second guessing of being there and you're like this is horrible and
1: you're like that's awful (laughs) this is a horrifying viewpoint that you have yeah and the film clint eastwood does the really lame manipulative filmmaking stuff of there's a scene where this character who has been around the whole time but you haven't gotten to know him at all all of a sudden is is volunteering information that he's about to propose to his girlfriend And you're like thinking, why are we learning that this guy is about to propose to his girlfriend? Is he about to get shot? And yes, of course he is. (laughs) I mean, this is based on Chris Kyle's autobiography that he wrote before he ended up getting killed. And probably after the movie came out, it was discovered that a lot of the stuff he wrote in the autobiography was bullshit.
0: Mm -hmm. He was like a a compulsive liar. Good. Yeah. He also, separate from this, told an insane lie about Hurricane Katrina.
1: Yes, that he went down there after Hurricane Katrina. And was with picking his off looters. Yeah. Like, that's is, a good first thing. First of all, a crazy lie to tell because you should be going to prison. And <laughs> second of all, didn't actually happen. But he lied about all kinds of stuff that you would think this sort of natural audience for this film would be upset about. Mm-hmm. Like, he pretended that he had medals from the war that he did not actually win, which I believe is hugely frowned upon yes. <laughs> by the military. Um. It's a wild time, this movie. Yeah.
0: So I think, right, like there's two conversations about this, like many of the movies we talked about. There's the content conversation, yes. which is regardless of how you feel about the war. And I think we've had this conversation, too. Of, you know, a lot of soldiers now are people who join the military because they want to go to college or they need to get out of a bad situation. Yes. And it's horrible. It, or they have
1: no other options. Yeah. Which is the, the military preys on the poor kids right. of the nation who have nowhere else to go.
0: So, you know, that's its own can of worms, ball of wax. But I just, I think we've also had the conversation about can a movie be nominated based on technical achievement alone? And I think we're sort of leaning towards, yes, a movie can be nominated for that reason. American Sniper raises the question of can a movie be nominated when it has gross technical flaws? And I feel like the answer is no. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, I I guess there's a, conversation that we had about maybe the film is doing something so culturally important that you can look past the technical flaws but this movie is is not technically good nor is it culturally good (laughs) i don't there's no artistic merit there's no technical merit I don't understand why this film is nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, so uh, this one was bad,
0: guys. And I think, you know, we'll talk about Selma next episode, but I think this movie could have been up against any of these 15 other films, and it would have been the loser. Correct.
1: It is an embarrassment for the Academy that it was nominated, especially since the only possible reason it was nominated is because Clint Eastwood directed it. And if that is a reason to nominate a film, then... Look at your life. Look at your choices. (laughs) It's not good. Yeah. All right. I feel satisfied because I've been waiting eight years to publicly humiliate this film in some way. But I finally
0: have been able to do it. But yeah,
1: I won't say watch the movie because don't do that to yourself. But if you haven't seen the fake baby hand, Google it. Yeah, that that scene is on YouTube
0: (laughs) of, of, of Bradley Cooper manipulating that baby's arm. And it's really funny. So that's worth it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> All right, let's leave it there. But that's, that's another strike in the Clint Eastwood column as we're tracking Clint Eastwood films. Next loser is Theory of Everything. What is Theory of Everything about?
0: So Theory of Everything is based on a book by Stephen Hawking's first wife. So this is really her story, although I, I don't think you would know that through the advertising. And yeah. it tracks his romance with her and the development of his ALS. So right before they get married, he gets his diagnosis. And, you know, over the course, he gets sicker and sicker. And we kind of see them struggle through their marriage, struggle to manage their kids and and his condition. Along the way, they meet a family friend played by Charlie Cox, whose name is Jonathan. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see that she's falling in love with him, but she remains faithful to Stephen as far as we can tell. And then towards the end of the movie, Stephen falls in love with another woman, someone who's serving as his aide, and and they end up getting divorced. And Jane ends up being able to get together with Jonathan. And And Stephen Stephen marries
1: his aide. They both end up marrying the other people that they meet, which is fascinating. So
0: that's kind of the story
1: of The Theory of
0: Everything. It is not about his scientific career.
1: So no, I mean, th- there's background discoveries happening, yeah. but it's mostly a marriage drama. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Eddie Redmayne won for his performance as Stephen Hawking. If ever there were an awards bait type of performance, this is the one that's very physically demanding and required and a transformation on his part. And obviously, he's very good in it. Yeah, I, I have no complaints about Eddie Redmayne. At- I don't have complaints about any of the performances. The performances <laughs> are all very good. It's pretty to look at, I think. It's super Biopicky, as we are always discussing. He's obviously a fascinating guy. He's a very interesting particular type of genius character. Mm -hmm. So hearing about everyone in his orbit and how this was all handled is fascinating. Because as you said, he was diagnosed before they got married. And when he got the diagnosis, it was like, you're probably going to live a year or two. Yes. And he ended up living way, 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 way longer (laughs) than anyone expected which is amazing. But he was ready to be like, we have to break up. I'm not here to ruin your life. And she was like, I'm choosing you and we're doing this and we're going to get married. And so there are a lot of intentional choices made on everyone's parts here to just make this work. But I think that the stuff with Charlie Cox is so interesting. That's the most interesting part of it to me. Mm-hmm. Because it's not, it doesn't go down the way you would expect where like Stephen is hard to take care of. So she's you know, gets distracted by this other guy outside the home, and then she's having an affair, and then Stephen is mad about it. It's not like that at all. No. Stephen completely acknowledges that taking care of him is a lot, and that Jane is going to need some sort of help to make this happen. And throughout their lives, they don't really have any money, probably until he publishes that book that's hugely successful. Yes. And so he sees that Charlie Cox and she have a connection and he sort of just welcomes him into the fold. Like, yeah. there's this great montage scene of all of them, the three of them and their kids, having this like day at the beach. And they're all having a wonderful time. At one point, Charlie Cox is sort of cuddling with Steven on their blanket. They're having this idyllic, beautiful life. <laughs> and you're like why can't charlie cox just move in with them and they could all be so happy
0: yeah the primary conflict is really coming from stephen's family where when they have their third kid stephen's family accuses jane of having an affair with charlie cox and it's at that point they're like well i think he says i need to step back because this is creating a problem and we were watching
1: and we were like he's feeling the tension too jonathan but yeah we were like no stay jonathan but yeah it's nice that at least they did work it out in the end And get to be together. It's a sweet movie. It is sweet. If you have any interest in Stephen Hawking and don't know that much about him, which I certainly didn't know much about his early life, watch it. If it's on TV, turn it on. It's fine. (laughs) It's an enjoyable film.
0: I cried at the end when they break up and she was like, I want you to know that I have loved you.
1: And I'm like, oh. I know. The best thing about it is it's very much about the intentionality and choice that goes into a marriage Mm -hmm. and they all acknowledge how much hard work this has been and how over and over they've had to just choose to keep doing this (laughs) and like make the decision that it's worth it and so then yeah when they break up it's this interesting moment of like she's put a lot into this over decades of her life it's beautiful yeah it's Um, nice (laughs) it's a nice movie okay on to our next loser our three seed The Lego movie.
0: Yeah, this movie is like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes or something very close to it. That's how it's in the third scene. So the Lego movie takes place in a Lego world, as you might know Mm -hmm. or imagine. And it's about this everyman who's not special at all. And basically a villain has been working in the background to make it so that none of the Legos can move anymore. He's trying to like glue all the Legos
1: together. Yeah, he has he has this weapon that is going to freeze every Lego in place because yes. he has a way that he wants them all to be displayed. And
0: yes, he wants them, everything to be perfect, which means not changeable. And so there are a group of heroes who are trying to get this mythical artifact before the villain does so that he can't do and that. And
1: they is a prophesied hero yes. that they are waiting to the appear special. who will be the one the special
0: and so all of the heroes are what's called master builders which means that they okay. can build whatever they want without instructions and so our everyman character goes on a journey with all these master builders and of course in the end he learns that he can be a master builder too you don't have to be a special and there is no special Aww. everyone's special everyone's special <laughs> <laughs> and they defeat the villain. But it turns out that this is all a metaphor for what's happening in the real world between a son and his father. The father has been building these Legos probably prior to the son's birth. He's very particular about it. And, of course, the son is young and wants to experiment. And so at the yeah. end, the the father sees all the things the son has done and they come together and he allows him to play with the
1: Legos. And, and it's, it's nice. very sweet. <laughs> And it has music that people probably will have heard. Everything is awesome is from this movie, which they did perform at the Academy Awards because it was an Academy Award nominated song. And it's just, yeah, it's a movie about everyone can be special and just about play and imagination and how nice it is to have freedom from conformity. And I do, I love the fourth wall breaky stuff when it cuts to... Footage of Will Ferrell plays the dad and his son, and it turns out that he's just been building this Lego town in his basement, and he wants to glue it all in place. Which is he doesn't see how villainous that is feeling to everyone else, and he has to be inspired by his kid. It's nice. It's a lovely little animated film.
0: Yeah, it's a really solid family movie but i wonder if some of the reason it was so well reviewed is it sort of is pirates of the caribbean syndrome where people are like a lego movie that's going to be terrible that's ridiculous yes. what are we doing and then it was good
1: <laughs> yeah i think it definitely benefited from some it's way better than we expected Sort yes. of reviews
0: i do find it to be a little thematically muddled because they do at some points be like sometimes you need to follow the rules which is true because they talk about you know like when you're driving now's yeah. not the time to invent
1: <laughs> right which is yeah, just yeah true I about agree life. I think it is fun, but not amazing. I think it's my least favorite of the three animated movies that we have on our list. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely enjoyable. Yeah. I don't think parents were suffering through this one when their children demanded that they watch it. No. It's nice. Uh, and there's a fun cast of characters who play all of the Master Builders: Well, so you get yeah, you get your Lego Batman who got his own spin-off.
0: Bill Arnett's Lego Batman has contributed to my inability to interact with dark and gritty Batmans, because anytime I see a Batman now, I'm just like, darkness no parents."): <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, he has made it a little more difficult to take Batman seriously.: It's fun., yeah. I have no major complaints. But I don't think it's groundbreaking. It's not one of my favorite animated movies or anything. No.
0: All right. Up next, The Imitation Game. Another biopic. The 13th seed. Tell me about it. The
1: Imitation Game, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, is a movie about Alan Turing, who's a mathematician and scientist, who is one of the early developers of what became what we think of as computers so during world war ii the germans have this device called the enigma machine that is what they use to code all of their secret messages so that the you know our military can't tell what their military is about to do and it was supposed to be an uncrackable machine because they changed the code every 24 hours and there just wasn't nearly enough time to by hand go through all of the various you know permutations solutions to yeah. this machine to crack whatever the code was on any given day. So Alan Turing had this vision of a machine that could be automated. The people in the, above him in the chain of command struggled to believe in him because <laughs> it sort of felt to them like this crazy boondoggle. He was asking for more and more money to build this machine that for a really long time seemed to come up with no results. He was working on a team with some other code cracker type people who... Even they struggled to get on board with his vision for this machine. He meets Kira Knightley, who is another really talented code breaker, but she's a woman and it's the 40s. So they struggle to bring her onto the team. They end up sort of putting her with the secretary pool or whatever. And then he just works with her at night Mm -hmm. to help him on his code cracking. They do end up cracking it. Surprise, surprise. And it helps the allies win the war. And then the sort of structure of the film is that years later in the 50s, 50s right I think so he is being investigated by the police because his house is burglarized and then the cops who are on the case think there's something suspicious about him because he is basically just like i don't want any of your help i don't want you investigating this break-in just leave and so they're like he must be hiding something and they start to investigate him and they think he's like a spy but it turns out he's just gay.
0: Yeah. They think he's a communist.
1: Yeah. And then once they have discovered that he's gay, the guy who's investigating him doesn't really want to ruin his life. But it's too late. He's already done it. And then Alan Turing ends up getting prosecuted and they put him on chemical sterilization medicines and he ends up committing suicide. Yeah. And it is a sad, sad story. We're actually jumping back and forth.
0: So between three time periods, the time period where he's in the future being accused of being a communist and investigated. Mm-hmm. During the co breaking, and then also when he's at school yes. as a young man and he is falling in love with his friend. That's a
1: lovely story. Who then dies But of then it's also incredibly <laughs> sad. It's awful, and everything in Alan Turing's life is the saddest thing ever. Yeah. So it's an uplifting piece. Uh huh. What do you think about it? Again, I mean, it's a well made biopic, it's an interesting person, it's a story people should probably all know about. Mark Strong plays this MI whatever agent. And he is tracking all of this as it's happening during the war. And he's one of the only ones who actually knows everything that's going on. He knows that they break Enigma, and at the end of the war is basically like, okay, no one can ever know that you did this. It it was classified that this cracking of the Enigma happened at all until many, many, many years later. And so then the real sadness to me is when this happens to Alan Turing in the 50s, Mark Strong could have fucking stepped in and saved this guy, but no. He doesn't care. He's the only person who knows what this guy did for the world. (laughs) And he just does nothing. I also, the part that I find doesn't ring true, and maybe it is true, but that is also problematic, is that once they crack the Enigma machine, there's this good scene when they've cracked it. And they're like, oh my God, we have to tell everyone that we've cracked it. And we know that the Germans are about to bomb this boat with all of these British civilians on it. And then they're like, oh wait, if we tell people and then we stop it, they'll know that we've cracked it, which is true and absolutely a thing people consider in their spycraft and you're like okay i'm on board and it's sad because one of the guys they're working with has a brother that's on the ship that's going to go down and it's very emotional but then after that the implication is this information that they have cracked enigma is too important for them to tell anyone so they just don't even tell their bosses that they've cracked it and then they specifically are the ones who make the decisions for the rest of the war about which intelligence to act on
0: yeah i don't think that's real that seemed
1: yeah it was weird
0: (laughs) yeah they're not military strategists so it's not really their job to make military strategy decisions right
1: and then the implication that the military strategists if they told them would not be able to operate that way like that they would do the stupid thing and act on the information instead of keeping it secret also doesn't make any sense because that's how military strategists work. That's their job. <laughs> like yeah. That's their job and they're the ones who invented the concept of not acting on all of the intelligence. So it was just really weird to me and it felt like, especially since the way they've structured it is that Alan Turing is telling this story to the cops. So it's like, are you trying to say that Alan Turing said that, he was the only one making these decisions like is your implication that alan turing was lying about this because that makes him seem like kind of a dick (laughs) yeah so that end part i found kind of strange
0: yeah i mean i I think you're right it's a solid biopic benedict cumberbatch's performance is kind of sherlocky which is you know fine it's his wheelhouse but it doesn't really feel like yeah him stretching his range also like the way they finally figure out how to crack the codes is very movie they're out for drinks and then one of yeah. they happen to be talking to one of the secretaries who intercepts the code and she's like all of the code breakers have their own way that they talk and in every message they're like heil hitler and they're like oh heil hitler yeah keyword that's probably how we're gonna do it i feel like they
1: could have come up with they would have come up with that on their own because <laughs> yeah, that's how smart. you crack codes so yeah you're right there's definitely some movie itis to it that makes it feel not as realistic as it might have felt, but I mean, it's solid. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's not as good as Theory of Everything, I think. I agree with that. Part of that is that Theory of Everything is a lot more emotional. It leans into the relationship stuff more than The Imitation yeah. Game does.
0: And yeah, The Imitation Game is actually a little bit more about what the scientist was doing. And I, I think they did as well as they could do. But visually, it's just them building a computer with like a bunch of gears, and you're like, I mean, that's cool.
1: Yeah. The difference between them is I feel like I would have gotten just as much out of watching a documentary about Alan Turing. Yeah. As I did by maybe more because I would have learned more about how it actually happened. Whereas the theory of everything feels like it gives you a window into the emotional lives of these people. Although, yeah, I do.
0: I do like the scene, I guess. So Roy Kinnear is the cop who's investigating him in the future time. And when he finds out that he's gay and not a communist,
1: how crestfallen he is. I like, know. Well, he really thought he was onto something. He was like, I'm, I'm about to save the Britain yeah. from this communist spy guy. And then he's like, oh, he's, he's just, just gay. gay. Oh, yeah. that
0: really fucked up. Oh, man. <laughs> this is not what I wanted yep. to do.
1: That's why you should just sometimes leave people alone. Yeah, Rory. Okay. That's the imitation game. Okay, let's move on, on to
0: another movie that made me cry.
1: Yeah, there were a lot of tears. Big Hero 6, our number 12 seed, another of our animated films. It was a good year for animation. Yeah,
0: this was the one that won Best Animated Picture.
1: Yes. So give me the, the rundown of Big Hero 6.
0: So Big Hero 6 is about a, a very young genius. He's probably like 14 or something, who is wasting his time building robots to go to underground robot fights and hustle people out of money. His older brother is also very smart, but probably not as much of a genius. He's in college working in this very innovative lab with all these other you know, kids underneath this wonderful professor. And the older brother gets the younger brother to, to come in to meet the professor, to meet the other kids, see their innovations. And the, the younger brother is super motivated. He's like, oh, this is where I have to be. This is so much fun. So in order to get into the school, he has to present an invention at a big event. It seems like a grown-up version of a science fair. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and what he invents are these micro robots that's sort of based on the robot that he had used in the fight so it can kind of come apart and build anything immediately. Everyone's really excited about this invention. There's an industrialist who wants to buy it right away and like bring him into the company and he can make a lot of money or he can decide to go to school and really, you know, like use his brain for good. So. He He decides he's going to go down the path of school. He's going to be with his brother and these new friends that he's made. And it's this beautiful, beautiful moment. And then, as they're leaving the grown up science fair, the building catches on fire and the professor is still in the building. So his brother rushes in to try to save the professor. And the building blows up and his brother Tadashi dies. (laughs) And then I'm crying.
1: So sad, guys. (laughs) Because Tadashi is the best, (laughs) Tadashi is amazing. And it is like such a sad moment and shocking in a children's film. It's like a Lion King, Mufasa dies kind of shocking moment where you're like, they wouldn't do this <laughs> to the children, right? And they totally <laughs> to do the children and to me, an adult person, Tadashi, <laughs> not Tadashi. So then, yeah, Hero is yeah. super depressed.
0: Oh yeah, the younger brother's name is Hero. So Tadashi in the lab had been working on essentially this big nurse robot. So if you get injured, this, robot inflates he's like a big balloon and and tries to help you and his name is baymax and he's the cutest and so hero is very depressed one day he stubs his toe and baymax activates Ah. and baymax notices that one of his little remaining microbots is trying to get somewhere and so this microbot leads them on an adventure they realize that someone has stolen his microbot technology and has been using it to do something he ends up reconnecting with Tadashi's friends they basically form a superhero team and the big hero six The big hero six <laughs> with all their different inventions serving as powers and it turns out that someone is using the microbots to try to bring back online like an interdimensional
1: portal <laughs> they've well they've invented a star Trekky teleportation device yeah But in the testing of the device, something went wrong, someone went in one end, and then it all broke, and they never came out the other end. Yeah,
0: it's revealed that it was the professor along, it was his daughter who went through the device, which was the result of that industrialist. And so he's trying to bring her back. It turns out she's been in stasis in this portal. And so they're able to rescue her, but Baymax gets left behind. And also Tadashi is (laughs) perma-dead.
1: What the hell? Yeah, it's awful. They rescue the daughter, but not Tadashi. Because they can't. I mean, he burned up in a fire. Yeah, he exploded. He's really dead.
0: But yeah, the professor killed Tadashi. He ends up going to prison, which also was real rough for his daughter because she came back after being in stasis. And she's like, what? Right.
1: She goes into a teleportation device. Everything stops for her. Then they rescue her immediately after in her mind. And her dad has murdered a bunch of people and is going to prison. Yeah. (laughs) So that's a rough way to
0: come back. But then Hero ends up going back to school and staying friends with Tadashi's friends and
1: hanging out with Baymax I love how supportive all of Tadashi's friends are they all want to cheer Hiro up when he's so sad I love Tadashi and Hiro's aunt who Mm -hmm. is raising them all on her own she's got so much going on this wonderful woman that's the
0: thing that's really sad too is presumably their parents are also dead or something's happened to them so it's really just you know him his brother and his aunt
1: Oh, it's really sad. We're Tadashi, <laughs> it's a it's a tearjerker of a movie.
0: Yeah, but Baymax is so sweet. Such a sweet Baymax is invention.
1: Adorable. Yeah, Baymax is one of the cuter imagined robot-y things. It's like. What was the name of Oh BB-8 from the newer Star Wars movies? Mm -hmm. Love, so cute and round. I feel similarly about Baymax. Just adorable little robot creature.
0: (laughs) Well, such a genius idea because obviously usually robots are hard and metallic and he is a balloon.
1: And you can hug him. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I love him. This movie gets me, man. I cry (laughs) every time I watch it. Multiple times. It's beautiful. I'm a fan. Yeah. All right. Ready to move on to our next loser? Yes, it is number 11, Edge of Tomorrow, an action film. This is a fun one. We ended up, obviously the seating was not determined by us, but we ended up with the Snowpiercer, Edge of Tomorrow, like, action movie face-off, which I was excited about. Yes. So, what's the plot of Edge of Tomorrow before we get into it?
0: So, Edge of Tomorrow is set in the near future. It might actually be the past now I can't quite remember Uh, but there has been an alien invasion and humanity is not doing well we're not winning we are about to lose all of Europe I think and so Tom Cruise is a former marketing guy who has joined the army as a you know he's doing like PR for the military he's not a soldier Yes. And so he's sent over to the like last ditch effort in the European theater to, to cover it. And Brendan Gleeson ends up deciding he's gonna fight. I don't quite know why. I think he just hates him.
1: <laughs> he's just obnoxious. And so Brendan Gleeson is like, you know what, we could use more soldiers. You're one yeah. of them. So oh, Brendan Gleeson
0: is the general, the commanding officer. I'm not quite sure
1: what his Of is. not the US military, but like the allied forces, basically.
0: Yes, in Europe. And so they fight the aliens in these mech suits. And so Tom Cruise is suited up. He goes into this this theater and everything goes wrong right away. It seems like the aliens knew they were coming. It's real, real bad. Yeah. And so there's a alien that looks a little bit different. Tom Cruise is sort of fighting it. He cuts off one of its limbs or something and a bunch of its blood. He like
1: kind of almost accidentally kills this alien. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And it burns him. It's like acid. So he dies, but then he wakes up and it's the start of the same day over again. And he's like, say what? Yeah. And so Tom Cruise is basically in a Groundhog Day situation because he was exposed to this alien blood. And every time he dies, he wakes back up at the start of the day. Meanwhile, Emily Blunt's character is a great war hero in this world. She successfully won one of the few... I think battles that they were able to win at Verdun. Verdun. She's the angel of Verdun. It's a world war one reference. Uh And she's also the full metal bitch. Those are her two names. A lot of monikers for her. And so it, it turns out that she had been exposed to the alien blood prior. And that's how she was able to win at Verdun. But she no longer has this ability. Basically, if you get a blood transfusion or basically any blood mixes in with yours, you lose it. And so she almost died, but didn't and got a blood transfusion and is out. So they are using his ability to wake up to try to win this final ditch battle and eventually
1: kill the Omega? <laughs> yeah, they, the aliens function in kind of one of those traditional, you know, hive alien mind. hive mind situations where there's a queen, where if you kill the queen, basically everything else will die.
0: And so yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's especially the, the portion where Tom Cruise is terrible at being a soldier and is just dying repeatedly in different ways.
1: And just like accidentally, like the dumbest possible he tripped over his own feet kind of (laughs) deaths.
0: There's a great montage of them. His first challenge is finding her because in one of the battles she tells him, when you wake up, find me. She realizes in the battle what's happening to him. And so one of my favorite deaths for Tom Cruise is he's figuring out how to get to her. And so he's running with the other troops and he ducks down to try to roll under an oncoming truck to get away from them. And he just gets run over by the truck.
1: It's really good. And all the soldiers stop and are like, what did he just do? He just rolled under a truck and got run over. Like what a wild thing to do. And it's also great because
0: once they get into the swing of things of trying to train him, Emily Blunt is, is so cold that anytime he gets hurt, she just shoots him in the head. So he dies. <laughs>
1: Well, they need to restart the day. There's no use waiting around for him to be injured. Yeah. And so
0: that part's really fun. I find that it sort of slows down in the third act once they're not doing that as much. And they're mm-hmm. really getting deep into the final mission. And there's a bit of a like kind of romance between him and Emily Blunt, yeah. which I don't particularly love. Yeah, I don't need
1: it. But yeah, it's a good time. I mean, I always love a Groundhog Day scenario. It's just always going to be a good time. And there are solid action and humor montages in this that really keep the pace up, like you said, for the earlier parts of it. And yeah, I think the ending is fine. Not amazing. The, the best stuff is earlier on when they're really playing with the format of the Groundhog Day thing. Emily Blunt, I think, is very good. Yeah, she's excellent. She's like cold and scary, but also charming and you like her. So yeah, she's a good match for the Tom Cruise character. I think it's a fun time. It's a real good action movie.
0: Yeah, I'd recommend it to people.
1: Plus it has the weird drama of the title change, which is always an interesting yeah. conversation.
0: So this is based on a graphic novel, I think, called All You Need Is Kill. And so then they released it as Edge of Tomorrow, but now I believe it is officially
1: called Live, Die, Repeat. But I don't, I don't understand. How do you change the name of a movie after a movie is out? When I saw this movie in the theater, it was called Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah. And now if I'm trying to watch it again, I'm supposed to look up live die repeat? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think once the movie's out, that's what it's called. Unless you've somehow accidentally called your movie a racial slur or something. And then later are like, Oh, no, we gotta change it. You can't just be like, Oh, the second most popular title in testing is actually better. Let's change it after we've released the movie. I don't understand. Anyway, fun movie recommend if you like your action and your aliens and your groundhog day scenarios it's a fun use of the groundhog day scenario totally okay on to the next it is another heartbreaker another heartbreaker number 10 how to train your dragon 2 so obviously
0: this is the sequel to how to train your dragon (laughs) 1 It's about a group of Vikings who in the first movie initially they were at war with the dragons. And then sort of like the young prince of the land Hiccup discovers that dragons are our friends yes. and you can train them to be basically like your faithful steeds who are like part horse because they're a steed, part cat because they're just cats. They have cat personalities. <laughs> It's great. And so you know how to train your dragon Two starts with we're Vikings. These are our dragon friends. And then Hiccup and his friends discover that there is basically this warlord who is also using dragons, but he is not befriending them. He no. is capturing and subjugating them.
1: Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Meanwhile, Hiccup, who has been raised entirely by his father and his mother presumed dead, he stumbles upon this society of dragons that his mother has apparently been living in for basically his entire life. It's crazy. She's befriended the dragons. And it's this wild reunion between the two of them, because he always thought that she had been killed. And it turned out that she just didn't want to live in the Viking society that hated the dragons because the dragons... Are so cool. And she didn't think that anyone would ever come around to her way of thinking. She's very excited to learn. That the dad has come
0: around too to yeah. befriending dragons, and it looks like they're gonna reunite and be a happy family. Oh god. And then so kind of similar actually to the alien in, in Edge of Tomorrow, it turns out like the, the there are alpha dragons who mm-hmm. can control all the other dragons. And so she's living with this alpha but like a nice alpha. Yeah, he's he's chill. He's seems very old and doesn't seem to do much He just wants to rest and let everybody do whatever they're gonna do. Yes. And it turns out the evil warlord has found another alpha a bad alpha. challenges and defeats the first alpha and he's going to use this alpha to destroy the vikings who he has beef with from the past and as part of this hiccups dragon toothless who is the best yeah. gets mind controlled oh and it's then so terrible in a moment which once again this is a children's movie mind controlled toothless kills hiccups dad and then he comes out of it and is like what happened are we friends we're best oh, friends no. what's going on best friend and then hiccup is like get out of here oh. and toothless doesn't know what's going on because he doesn't even remember it's so and sad the dad is completely dead and then you're like oh my god these people are going to have to deal with the fallout of the fact that his friend pet killed his dad while he was mind like what well it's it's a children's movie
1: (laughs) toothless is about to kill hiccup right and his dad like jumps in front of and like takes the hit and that's how he dies it's fucked up guys it's (laughs) fucked up it's too much for children to have to deal with i have long
0: said that this is the movie i'm happiest i did not see as a child like i don't know how child me would have been able to handle it because adult me basically could not handle yeah. it. I was it. It's a lot, but you know they defeat the the bad alpha, and then Hiccup's gonna live with his mom. But his-
1: she comes yes. back. But yeah, the the mom and dad were gonna rekindle their romance because they did always yeah. love each other. They just had this fundamental disagreement about dragons, but they were gonna be so happy, and he was gonna have his family together again. And then it's just awful. It's awful the dad dying. And in that way, yeah. poor Toothless, the trauma—I know for everyone. For Hiccup, his best friend killed his dad. I mean, it's awful, man. Oh, yeah. man! It's even harder because it's—it's his best friend and his pet. Yeah, <laughs> just like. <"Mm-mm-mm." sighs> I mean, emotional heavy hitters these animated movies this year, truly. But again, it's a magical world. If you haven't seen this or the first one, the dragons are so great. And Toothless oh, is just crazy levels of cute. And he looks and acts exactly like everybody's pet cat. <laughs> he's, <Yeah>. like, <laughs> he's just the best. I love Toothless. Dragon cat. Oh, Kit Harrington plays a hilarious character in this called Eret, son of Eret.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's a bounty hunter who thinks he's so great. And then he's around and he, he also becomes a friend. A yeah. yeah. He's a sweet guy
1: yeah it's a fun time except for the parts where you're crying yeah except for
0: the psychological horror of of like how do you move forward in your relationship with your best friend
1: slash pet yeah a lot of therapy i think it was gonna have to be some viking therapy (laughs) but it's a good time yeah i'd recommend it
0: i i also i mean we may end up talking about how to train your dragon when,
1: whenever we get to that year, but mm-hmm. I'd recommend
0: that one as well.
1: Well, Yan, I also uh, would recommend that you not just start with the second one in the series. You yeah. should watch the first one. It's true. Okay. That brings us to our final loser, a shocker, a huge twist. No one could have seen this coming. The odds makers are throwing out their books. It's unbelievable. They're going to have to pay out some crazy bets on this one. The winner, the best picture of 2014, Birdman, has lost. Out in
0: the first in round. In the first
1: round. How has this happened, you might ask? I mean, that's the seating system, people. It's, it yeah. is what it is. Amazingly, Birdman has ended up smack dab in the middle of the field. That's and, true. you know, these things happen. Upsets. Upsets in the first round. That's why you got to play the game. Exactly exactly so Birdman's about Birdman is fascinating film it is kind of a satire about the film industry and entertainment broadly it stars Michael Keaton as this character who is kind of a washed up past his prime actor who back in his glory days played a superhero character called Birdman very self-referential to Michael Keaton as Batman and he at this point in his career would like to be known as a serious actor and so he is trying to leave behind his image as Birdman and stage a play on I don't know if it's on Broadway on Broadway but in New York he's trying to stage a play I'm guessing it's off Broadway yeah And so it's this very serious stage play. He's playing the main role and he's directing it and he has written the adaptation. So he's really staking a lot of his credibility on this production. Before they have opened for previews, his co-lead of the play is involved in an accident. A light falls on his head. He can no longer act. They need to bring in somebody to amp up the excitement about the play. So they stunt cast Edward Norton's character, who's like a very respected Broadway actor. Michael Keaton's character is dealing with hallucinations, basically, where he is seeing and hearing himself as Birdman commenting on his day-to-day life. So he's got that going on, which is wild. He's also dealing with the various issues. He's also hallucinating that he has telekinesis. Oh, yeah. He can like float and stuff. It's fascinating. (laughs) And move things with his mind. So he's got that going on, probably losing his mind. He also is dealing with staging the play. So there's artistic stuff going on. Edward Norton has come in and is challenging him to really make this play much better than it was. And Ed Norton, again, self-referentially and hilariously, is playing this very difficult method actor who is very dedicated to the craft, and because of that is a huge asshole to everyone around him. Meanwhile, Michael Keaton's daughter, who is played by Emma Stone, is freshly out of rehab, and he has given her a job as his assistant. And so she is around dealing with her relationship with him, really, because clearly, when she was a kid, he was much more successful actor and did not spend any time with her. And he's like trying to figure out how to have a relationship with her while also still being just as narcissistic and self-obsessed as he ever was. (laughs) Because he's totally devoted to this play. And she's there being like, this play is meaningless. No one cares about this play. It's a bad play. And it is. (laughs) It is a bad play. Also, there's this Broadway play critic who is in conflict with Keaton's character because she is very anti, basically Hollywood. Like she kind of is a only theater is real acting sort of person. And so she's prepared even before this play has premiered to completely tear it and him to shreds. The whole thing is kind of a meta commentary on a lot of things, actually. I mean, it's making a statement about where cinema is now and like the preponderance of superhero movies but it also is making a statement about the self-seriousness and ridiculousness of the actors and the artists themselves so there's kind of a lot going on with it i also haven't mentioned it's filmed so as to appear as one long continuous shot so it's kind of yes that is the big thing about this movie yes the cinematography is apparent and fascinating it is a cinematography forward movie so that's Birdman. What did you think of Birdman?
0: I mean, it's interesting. There's definitely things to like about it. I, I loved how bad the play was. It's there's It's hilarious bit of how bad the where play is. Where, where, the, where Michael Keaton, his monologue, his big moment that he wrote is talking about a woman coming to visit her husband in the hospital or something with these burn victims. And he's like, in the mouth holes. And I looked in the eye holes. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a, there's like, a character so he's
1: describing who's covered in bandages. Yeah. and so then yeah he's like talking about through the mouth hole and he couldn't see through and she looked him in the eye holes and it's like awful <laughs> it's
0: <laughs> so bad. horrible and they monologue. repeat this monologue multiple times throughout the movie because he's practicing it a lot and they're in that part of the play i mean i don't want to get too much into it but i thought this was movie was interesting to watch alongside whiplash because they're kind of similar in that sort of like this is art and we're making art yeah. and this is important and then how the movie treats that I felt like this was still, for me, like too sympathetic (laughs) to these insane people and too forgiving of them in places. It is satirical and it is making fun of them, but I don't know that you walk away from it necessarily being like, yeah, all these people are ridiculous and this is crazy.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I found the choice to have it be one long take to be a little bit more form than function for me. I found it pretty exhausting overall, and I'm not sure it did enough for the narrative to really justify it. Also in relation to Whiplash, the score was also very funny and obvious too. It's a, it's a pretty like, New York City, it's jazz. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to the beats of the, of the city streets. And so, yeah, I, I, I found it to be kind of like, like, the word that's coming to mind is like pounding. Mm-hmm. In a way that I was like, well, now I'm very tired <laughs> after watching it. But yeah, it's, it's definitely got some things to recommend it. I wouldn't not recommend it to people, but it's, it's a lot.
1: Yes. Pounding is an interesting way of describing it. It's not a relaxing view. I think I don't dislike the one long shot, but I don't disagree with you that I'm not sure how much it's really bringing other than being like neat. I don't find it exhausting, but I also don't find it like, ah, yes, the metaphor of it is really working for me or something like that. And yeah, the New York, it's jazz, it's alive (laughs) thing. It was hilarious having just watched Whiplash. I think the performances are really good. Yes. Everybody is very compelling. uh, Even when they're being ridiculous perhaps most when they're being ridiculous they're very compelling i think the michael keaton playing on batman thing is funny but i the funniest thing to me about it is edward norton as a difficult method actor is yes is he that self-aware because that's hilarious
0: (laughs) it has to be
1: but also like if you are why don't you do something about it you absolute lunatic well that's funny too
0: right because Obviously, there's the Keaton Batman connection, but also, right, Edward Norton gets
1: let go from the MCU playing Hulk because he's too difficult. Yep. But that's its own funny thing is that even the difficult method artiste guy wants to be a superhero, right? Like, he has to be let go from being the Hulk. He didn't say no to being in it. The whole thing is Mm -hmm. a very interesting commentary but yeah I don't disagree with you that maybe it's too sympathetic maybe it's not I just think it's that it doesn't have a clear opinion I think you can take what you want from this movie and I find it to be hilariously scathing about a lot of these things but I don't necessarily know that that's exactly what the film intends because I think you sort of are just left to draw your own conclusions by the film and it could mean a lot of things and it could be like but at least it's all worth it because we make great art or it could be like what you've made is a stupid thing and you put everyone through a lot of hell <laughs> for no right. reason.
0: Yeah, and also like what's it saying about pop movies and right. the superhero genre I think is a little unclear too. I also, interestingly with the, the like the monologue about the face holes and the mouth hole, uh, which I love, <laughs> uh, is there are... are monologues in this movie that are not that that I found to be kind of like speechifying like there's a bit where Emma Stone is talking to him about it like he doesn't even have a Facebook and doesn't know where Twitter
1: is and he doesn't matter he's not relevant I'm like yeah this is very written yeah it's not underwritten the film which is funny because yeah it's like they're making a statement about it with the stupid speech that he's written but then also there are plenty of monologues where you're like that was pretty monolog and that's the thing is that I'm left with I like a lot of pieces of it but it doesn't come together in a thing where I'm like that's what you were saying and I totally agree <laughs> Right? You know? Like you want it to be a network and it's like yes. not it's quite there. it's striving for network seemingly and it doesn't it doesn't get to network. But yeah so few things do really. Too true. But yeah, I mean I do like it. I understand why it won because Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood. They are always gonna do that. And it is obviously like a very impressive piece of filmmaking, which for sure they always are gonna be into. And I find a lot of it really funny. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's fair too. Okay. All right. We've wow. made it
0: through our losers. So I'm amazed. We should talk about what our next step is, our next episode.
1: We uh, will be coming back to continue talking about the 87th Academy Awards of 2014, round two of the bracket. So all of these winners will now face off against each other. So the matchups going into next episode are the number one seed,
0: Selma. Against the number eight seed, Grand Budapest Hotel. Then our next matchup is the number two seed, Boyhood. Against the number seven seed, Guardians of the Galaxy. Which I think is an interesting matchup. About Mm -hmm. two boys growing up. (laughs) Yeah, true. Our next matchup is number six, Snowpiercer. Against number 14, Foxcatcher. Mm -hmm. And then our final matchup is our number four seed, Nightcrawler. Against our number
1: five seed, Whiplash. Ooh, hot matchup. Yeah okay very excited about that in the meantime as always if you have comments questions concerns do reach out to us at oscarswrongpod at gmail.com we are on twitter and Letterboxed at oscarswrongpod if you are enjoying the podcast please tell a friend leave us a review and subscribe new episodes of the pod come out every other friday at 6 o'clock eastern wherever you get your podcasts